Hi and welcome to Paul Martin's Catholic Podcast. I'm Paul Martin and I'm talking today about the early church. Was the early church Catholic or was it something very, very different? And I'm going to look at the earliest Christian writings outside of the New Testament that are dated from roughly 50 AD to the 130s. AD. In other words, roughly 100 years after Jesus started the church, or one or two generations after the last of the apostles died. Because I think the earliest we can get to, it should give us a very good idea about many of the beliefs of the early church. Now, I met a woman once and she said to me, I go to a church that's like the early church. And I said, that's great. So you belong to a church that has complete obedience to the bishops, that has infant baptism, and distributes your property to all in need, Acts chapter 4, verses 34 to 35, and you belong to a church that has celibate men and women who are fully devoted to God, 1 Corinthians 7, Acts chapter 21, verse 9, and you belong to a church that has the power to forgive or retain sins, John chapter 20, verses 21 to 23, and you follow church traditions, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 15 and she looked stunned and she said no 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 we're just an independent church we meet in a house like the early church did and I said what that's the only thing you've got in common with the early church you meet in houses and she said well the early church met in houses And I said, of course they met in houses. They met in houses because the early church had just started and they didn't have buildings to meet in. And the vast majority of early Christians were slaves or poor people. But within a few decades, it was well known that Christians had churches and they they met in catacombs where they had paintings, icons, done icons of Jesus and the resurrection and they used uh, pictures and symbolism of fishes and they had a Eucharistic service which is very similar to today's Catholic Church and she said oh look I'm not into that I just follow scripture I met an independent Baptist as well and he said to me that the early church just followed the Bible and that they were these early churches were all independent of each other and they just each read the Bible for themselves and I had several questions for this gentleman I said evidence where's the evidence that of that and he didn't give me any all he could do was quote the King James Bible And then I pointed out that there was no Bible canon for Christians until 382 AD. And in order to canonise the books of the Bible, you need authority outside of the Bible to decide which books are scripture. 
And I also asked him how could a bunch of independent churches withstand masses of heresy like Martianism, Arianism, modalism or Gnosticism? And he had no answer. It was the Catholic Church that followed the traditions of the apostles and had absolute authority that was able to declare what was heresy and what was orthodoxy. So the question is, is the New Testament a complete and exhaustive list of early Christian writings? Well, there are entire books missing that were written by the apostles. For example, we have Paul's previous letter to the Corinthians, and that's in one mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9 where Paul says in my previous letter to you. So 1 and 2 Corinthians are really 2 and 3 Corinthians respectively. And then there was Paul's letter to the Laodiceans, which is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4 verse 16. And in Luke chapter 1 verses 1 to 3, it says that many have written their own accounts of the life of Christ or the things he did. And the Gospel of John says that it's only a small brief account of everything Jesus said and did. That's in John chapter 20 verse 30 and John chapter 21 verse 25. And it says that Jesus did and said many, many other things that are not recorded. There are other traditions of Jesus that existed outside of the four Gospels. For example, in Acts chapter 20 verse 35, it's quoted where Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And yet that is not found anywhere in the four Gospels. And furthermore, the church relied on traditions, not just scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 2 says to maintain the traditions even as I delivered them unto you. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 says stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either in word of mouth or by letter. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 6 says to keep away from anyone who is idle and not in accord with the traditions that you received from us. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, What you have heard from me before, many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So the scripture itself tells us that there is an authority outside of scripture, and that is tradition. Now the church has been endowed with great power, and authority. 1 Timothy 3 verse 15 says, The church is the pillar and foundation of truth. Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 to 18 says that we must listen to the church or be expelled. And in John chapter 20 verses 21 to 23, Jesus gave the church the authority to forgive sins or retain them. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 4 to 6 says that the church is one Catholic 
an apostolic, and it's never described as some invisible, abstract, vague ideal of a bunch of contradictory denominations. And the church had to have authority in order to to be divinely guided to canonise scripture. So we're going to look at early Christian writings outside of the New Testament. And I chose them because they were within roughly a hundred years of the time Jesus started the church. Or one or two generations after the last apostle died. So here's the books I'll be looking at. The Didache, an early Christian tradition dated to about 50 AD. It was written before many of the books of the New Testament were even written. There's the letter of Barnabas, the apostle, in 75 AD. The shepherd of Hermes, around 80 AD, which is a apocalyptic series of visions seen by Hermes of Rome. Then there is Pope Clement, who's mentioned in the New Testament, and he wrote his letter to the Corinthians and his second letter. And he wrote around, his first letter was about 70 AD and his second one was about 80 AD. And then there was Ignatius of Antioch, who died about 107-108 AD, and he wrote a series of letters to the churches. Then there's Polycarp, who lived around about 68 AD to about 155 AD, and he wrote his letter, his one surviving letter, in the 130s AD, which was his letter to the Philippians. There was also Papias, who around about 130 AD, there's a few fragments of his writings. And then there is the Apocalypse of Peter, which was written in the about 135 AD, which is traditions ascribed to the Apostle Peter. And there's a couple of other apocryphal writings. There's the Ascension of Isaiah, which dates to 90 AD, and the Odes of Solomon to about 125 AD, which have Christian interpolations written in this Jewish tradition, the Ascension of Isaiah and the Odes of Solomon. So I'm going to have a look at these writings. The Didache, in section 4, it quotes Sirach, chapter 4, verse 31. Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus, is a book found in the Catholic Bible, but not in Protestant Bibles. And Sirach, Ecclesiasticus, means the church book. And it quotes from many scriptures including Sirach chapter 4, verse 31. Section 7 says baptism was done in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. It was done in living water, like a river or a lake, but if it was not available, then baptism was done by pouring three times. Section 16 says your faith will not profit you 
if you be not made perfect in the last time. So you'd have to be made perfect to get into heaven. And we Catholics believe that. If you die imperfect and you're a child of God, you'll get purged through purgatory and made perfect. And section 2 of the Didache says, You shall not murder a child by abortion. Section 14 says, Assemble on the Lord's Day, that's Sunday. Confess sins, have reconciliation prior to the Lord's Supper. And section 16 refers to the rise of the Antichrist in the end times. So in the Didache, we don't find all Catholic dogmas in there, but we, whatever we find there, it matches up with and agrees with Catholicism. Now we go to Clement's letter to the Corinthians, which was written about 70 AD. Chapter 27, verses 4 and 5, quotes from the Book of Wisdom, chapter 12, verse 12. Wisdom is a book that is not found in Protestant Bibles, but it is in the Catholic Bible. Chapter 5 talks about Peter's martyrdom in Rome. I say this because some Protestants claim that Peter never went to Rome, even though there's an overwhelming amount of evidence and church tradition and historians like Eusebius who testify that he was martyred in Rome and that he was crucified upside down under Nero although those details aren't found in Clement, but Clement does say he was martyred in Rome. Chapter 42, verses 4 and 5, and chapter 44, verses 1 and 2, says that the bishops and deacons have their authority from the apostles, and they had obtained a perfect foreknowledge to guide and lead the church. And chapter 14 and 63 says those who rebelled against Clement's authority were damned and under judgment. In chapter 2 verse 10 and chapter 95 verse 3 it says that contraception is a grave sin. Chapter 44 verses 4 and 5 says the presbyters offer a very important sacrifice at the mass. And the presbyters were what we call today priests. 55 verses 2 and 6, um, Clement drew inspiration from Blessed Judith and Esther who prayed to God for victory. Now Judith is a book which is not found in the Protestant Bibles but it is in the Catholic Bible. And as for Esther, who prayed to God for victory, in the shortened version of Esther that the Jews and Protestants ascribe to, there is no mention made of God. But in the Catholic version of the book of Esther, 
she does pray to God. Which shows you that Clement in 70 AD, this early Christian bishop in Rome, believed in the books of Judith and the longer Catholic version of Esther. <clears throat> and in uh, Clement's second letter, in section 6, he says, You can't remain saved unless you keep your baptism holy and undefiled, and you must be possessed of works of holiness and righteousness. So the early church believed in the importance of doing good works and that you can lose your salvation. And in section 5, he warns that you can lose your salvation in Second Clement. And in section 17, he says, those in hell will suffer grievous torments in an unquenchable fire. And I say this because there are people like Jehovah's Witnesses and some liberal Protestants who deny the existence of hell. But that was not what the early church said. The letter of Barnabas, the Apostle Barnabas, is written about 75 AD and it quotes in section 6 from Wisdom chapter 2 verse 12 as a messianic prophecy. The book of Wisdom is not found in Protestant Bibles but it is in the Catholic Bible and Wisdom chapters 2 and 5 have messianic prophecies which I would encourage my separated Protestant brethren to read and pray about. In section 19, the letter of Barnabas condemns abortion and pederasty. Section 11 says that baptism was to wash your sins away. And section 19 talks about confession of sins that was done in the church. Section 15 says that they worshipped on Sunday or the eighth day on which Jesus rose from the dead. So Seventh-day Adventists who will try to tell you that the Sabbath day is the day Christians should worship and that Christians did it in Constantine's time. Well, 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 this is 250 years before Constantine. Now we go to the Shepherd of Hermes, around about roughly 80 AD. And these dates are approximate, give or take a few years. It's a series of visions that uh, Hermes had. He says that lustful, sinful thoughts are a serious matter. Book 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Book 1, chapter 2, verse 4, says he was commanded to write two books and send one to Clement, who was Bishop of Rome. And book 3, chapter 8, verse 7, says you can lose your salvation by sin or in leaving the tower, which the tower is a symbolic usage in this book for the church. So the Calvinistic idea that you cannot lose your salvation is not found here in the early church in 80 AD. And he had a vision with 
consecrated virgins who were set aside to serve God. Book 2, chapter 4, verse 3 says that in the waters of baptism your sins are washed away. And Book 2, chapter 4, verse 1 says that divorcees should not remarry. Book 3, chapter 5, verse 4 says that the angels in heaven intercede for us. And there's something like purgatory, where temporary suffering for sins that believers commit, and that's in Book 2, chapter 2, and Book 3, chapters 6 and 7. And in the first commandment, in one, it seems to have quoted from 2 Maccabees, chapter 7, verse 28, which is a book not found in the Protestant Bible, but it is in the Catholic Bible. Now we come to Ignatius. Ignatius died roughly 107 to 110 AD. So that he died in the very early 2nd century. And Ignatius knew the Apostle John. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. And he was also friends with another disciple of John, Polycarp. <clears throat> in his letter to the Magnesians, section 8, Ignatius affirmed the divinity of Christ. He says, by the will of the Father and Jesus Christ, our God. And in his letter to the Ephesians, sections 1 <coughs> and section 18, he talks about how Jesus was with the Father in the beginning of time. Also in his letter to the Magnesians, section 6. In his letter to the Smyrnaeans, section 8, Ignatius says, Let no man do anything connected to the church without the bishop. Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is either by the bishop or by one to whom he has entrusted it. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude also be, even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. So he was the first person that we know of who referred to the church as the Catholic Church. And in his letter to the Romans, section 3, he notes that their church, that is the Roman church, instructed the other churches. So there we see the authority from the Pope and from Rome. In Romans, uh, his letter to the Romans, section 7, he says, I desire the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, who was of the seed of David, and for drink I desire his blood, which is love incorruptible. And in his letter to the Smyrnaeans, section 6 and 7, he says, Those who did not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Saviour Jesus Christ were perishing and not allowed to take the Eucharist. And in his letter to the Philadelphians, section 4, 
Ignatius says there is only one Eucharist and it is the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. And outside the church is God's wrath. The penitents must submit to the authority of the bishop. So many centuries before the deep and theological terminology of transubstantiation was used, back in the early church they essentially believed that. They may not have had all the fancy words that were used centuries later, but they believed that the bread and the wine was the body and blood of Christ. And he says in Magnesians, his letter to the Magnesians, section 13, submit to the bishops as Jesus submitted to the Father. In his letter to the Tralians, section 2, he says, revere the deacons as appointed by Christ. Obey the bishop as Jesus Christ. And obey the presbyters or priests as the Sanhedrin of God. And in his letter to the Magnesians, section 9, he said that we no longer observe the Sabbath, but we observe the Lord's Day, in which our life has sprung up again by him and by his death. So they did Sunday worship. Now we get to the letter to Polycarp and Smyrna, written by Ignatius. In section 6 he says, Let your works be the charge assigned you, that you may receive a worthy recompense. And now we get to Polycarp of Smyrna. And he wrote his letter to the Philippians around 135 AD. And he was martyred in 156 AD. He says, he talks about the Trinity in 135 AD. I praise you for all things. I bless you. I glorify you along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, with whom to you and the Holy Spirit be glory both now and to all coming ages. Amen. And in his letter to the Philippians, section 10, he quoted Tobit, chapters 4, verse 10, and chapter 12, verse 9, which says the same thing. It says, Almsgiving delivers from death. So he was talking about the importance of doing good works. And in the martyrdom of Polycarp, section 19, it says that he was a shepherd of the Catholic Church. And in section 17 of his martyrdom, they say that they preserved his bones as being more precious than gems. And in his martyrdom, sections 5, 12 and 16, they say he was considered an apostle and a prophet who had divine revelations. And that's Polycarp. Papias, 
who wrote around 130 AD, we, say, we see that he received traditions from the apostles, and we find that from Eusebius Church History, Book 3, Chapter 39, Verse 7. And in the Apocalypse of Peter, 135 AD, Section 25, it talks about the eternal torment in hell for women that did abortions. And that whole book talks about eternal torments of hell. And in the Ascension of Isaiah, chapters 11, chapter 11, verses 12 to 14, around 90 AD, it says that Mary had a painless birth. And the Odes of Solomon, chapter 19, verses 7 to 9, written in 125 AD, also believes that Mary had a painless birth. And in Genesis chapter 3, it says one of the curses of the fall was pain in childbearing. So this would seem that the early church believed that Mary had not been affected by original sin. But not every Catholic dogma is mentioned in these early writings. Why is that? And the answer is because not every early writing survives. We have only small snippets. It's like an incomplete jigsaw puzzle. You see, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. We don't have any of these early traditions of the first hundred years talking about the Assumption of Mary, for example. But then again, nowhere in these early writings do they say she wasn't assumed into heaven. And considering that we have massive amounts of writings by Athanasius, who lived in the 4th century or massive amounts of writings by Augustine, who lived in the 5th century, because they lived at a time where Christianity had less persecution and was more established, and so a lot of their writings were able to survive. But the further back you go in history, and with more persecution, a lot less writings survived. And some of them were traditions that were not recorded at this time, but later ones testify to things not mentioned here. For example, we have Irenaeus, who lived around 180 AD. Now, Irenaeus knew Polycarp, and Polycarp knew John, the Apostle John. And Irenaeus said that the church baptised infants, now, Hippolytus, who lived a generation after Irenaeus, around 215 AD, testifies that infant baptism was a tradition that came from the apostles. And that's in his Apostolic Tradition, section 21. The perpetual virginity of Mary is mentioned in the Proto-Evangelion of James which is a book written about 150 AD. It's an early Christian tradition. And this story says that Mary was a young woman who was a consecrated virgin 
and she got a divine revelation to marry an old widower, but not to consummate the marriage sexually. Now we may think, well, why would God get her to be married? And the, and the answer is because a pregnant woman who wasn't married would most likely be stoned to death in those days. So it was for her protection. But we see from these very early writings that the early church believed in the absolute authority of their bishops, that they were divinely guided as a church, they worshipped on Sunday, and they were very strong against remarriage, and they were very strongly against abortion, many of the things that the church is tough on today, and we find they believed in those deuterocanonical books which are not found in the Protestant Bible, but are in the Catholic Bible. Thank you for listening. I hope you've found this informative and challenging. God bless.